0: Hey, the libs are back. Yeah, we're all together. Oh. How did you? How was your vacation from us? Uh, whatever you call us, <laughs> <laughs> the rads,
1: the, 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 the like the postmodern edge lords. I, I just call them the ace beats. Yeah. Really, you
0: went and talked to like a right wing guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was fun. We had our interview with um,
0: a bunch of people actually, like Nate and, post. and Greg. Yeah, Greg Sargent and Nate. Yeah. Well, we are we've reassembled the Avengers from our. Uh, solo, solo films. And uh, yeah, we're back. We're back for another. Yeah, we only have to tolerate each other for one hour and 15 minutes, a riveting one hour and 15 minutes we have for you today. Indeed. So we're talking about Wittgenstein. And here's what I was thinking about Wittgenstein, who Matt will call Wittgenstein. He knows the (laughs) correct pronunciation, but he (laughs) will still refuse to do it. He chooses to do it just just because that's he
1: Maybe likes we to should, be edgy.
3: <laughs> issue <laughs> a language, language acknowledgement at the beginning <laughs> of this, some kind mm-hmm. of speech acknowledgement. Yeah,
1: I, I would prefer not to. That's the thing. I will call him what I want to call him. Matt would like to acknowledge that uh, that it is pronounced Wittgenstein, but yet he will choose to continue to call it him
3: Wittgenstein. He's lucky that I don't just call him Mr. W, so... He's moving to America, so he's practicing not pronouncing anything correctly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Ludwig
2: Van uh, Whiteinstein, Whiteinstein, and pronounce it. for the
3: listeners,
0: we have to now to get into our Zoom call. uh, Click a land acknowledgement from the institution which is hosting the Zoom call, and we were just kind of talking about this the speech act of land acknowledgement and how it's purely a speech act. We're still going to accrue. The value of the property that we you know we stole your land but you don't get it back
1: yeah and it's interesting that my institution doesn't do that that's like a new thing i've never seen without naming institutions uh it's the first time i've seen it where it pops up and you have to agree not only do you have to like see that land acknowledgement but you also
0: have to like say accept like agree with it it's like a little language game a compelled compelled language game with no material effect Oh my God! You sound like Jordan Peterson right now.
3: I wonder if it is compelled a good, uh, speech. Example of a language game that we're all kind of starting to play these days. Land acknowledgments. I mean, I guess I guess they'd have to have a particular use. We'll get we'll get into. He gives different examples. Yeah. <laughs> like Wittgenstein does. I, so I, I, I th- think Matt and I
0: disagree on Wittgenstein, but I'm going to open up with my take. You know, right. when a lefty suddenly decides, you know, they've had it with cancel culture. And then they go over to the right, and they're like, "I used to be a leftist." They begin every sentence with that. I'm sure there's examples. I don't really know them, but
3: Dave that's Rubens. basically they're Dave Rubens, all yeah. all over the comment section of YouTube. I'm yeah, sure. and
0: they're they're welcomed in to their to their grift over there, and they get money from all the uh, the Peterson sons.
2: Elon Musk yeah. actually pulled off something fairly similar recently uh, when he went on his big tirade being like, I voted Democrat my entire life because I thought they were the nice party, but now cancel culture is a threat to civilization, and I'm going to vote Republican for the first time in my life. And more or less everybody on the
1: left was like, bye. <laughs> if you did, if you did <laughs> that, Matt, your, your, income, <laughs> your income would probably go like, like uh, increased by a factor of five if you decided to become a right-wing grifter. Anyway. It's Continue. only a matter hey, of
0: time. We're gonna we're gonna get the there. Aisle, we're gonna run out of philosophers aisle. that are leftist, and then we'll have to switch over to uh, Dugan. Yeah, I was gonna say we already <laughs> kind Land. of did that a little. Nick bit. Land, Nick Land and Dugan podcast. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, I brought up this example because Wittgenstein was on the analytic, to- the analytic team, and he was the champion of the act of the analytic team. Bertrand Russell said he's uh, perhaps the most perfect example of a genius that I've ever known. <clears throat> And then Wittgenstein switched and said, you know what? Analytic philosophy is bullshit. So we welcome him with open arms. And uh, then Bertrand Russell said, oh, I got another quote. He said, um, the later Wittgenstein seems to have grown tired of serious thinking and to have invented a (laughs) doctrine which would make such an activity unnecessary. (laughs)
3: Pills is of course referring to the famous distinction between early Wittgenstein and late Wittgenstein. The Wittgenstein of the Tractatus and the Wittgenstein of philosophical investigations. Wittgenstein's rebut was also you should have
0: you should color code all of Bertrand Russell's books. All of the ones on mathematics should be required reading and everything on ethics and politics should be in blue and
3: then they should all be burned, or something like that. All the blue ones. <laughs> That's funny. Well, this this guy. I mean, you can you can just search online for good videos that describe his life. But this guy lived a pretty interesting life and was a pretty interesting guy in his own right. He's very strange. He was, he was born into a incredibly rich family, like rockefeller like rich obscenely yeah, exactly. like even even beyond the rockefellers beyond any of the they were obscenely rich i, I and heard a story he, he, actually- he gave all his money away like it's just very straight he gave away his entire inheritance like you just get things like that in his life that are like whoa this guy is and something he also, else he also
1: tried to move to the soviet union to just be a worker and they like tried to get him to be a professor <laughs> i think and he was like no i just want to be a worker
3: yeah like he voluntarily enlisted in the army. He's he's crazy. J- just give you a sense of the scale of
2: how wealthy he was. I was reading a biography of Wittgenstein. It wasn't the Ray Monk one, but it was another one, uh, where he was taking a vacation in Sweden, uh, and he had he didn't travel first class. He didn't even have a train carriage. He had a train uh, just for him and his friends like that'll give you a sense of like how mega wealthy this guy was. You know, it's the equivalent of having, you know, a private jet uh, or even a fleet of private jets just at your beck yeah. you call. Know, and Cambridge how, like, was like
3: the building of Cambridge to him was like his living room. Like it's his, this guy was just on another planet with how wealthy his family was. The, the, the Wittgenstein family, they were obscenely wealthy, but ludwig himself was given to some strange behavior very much had a kind of purity almost like a messiah complex going with his towards his philosophy he would often isolate himself in really really far away places like he would go to norway i think he started the tractatus in norway and he would stay in little huts out in the middle of nowhere and even the people who live in the middle of nowhere on the way to his hut would be like whoa dude why are you going out that far that's the middle of nowhere like this guy was a real kind of ascetic i guess the best way to describe him is gives away all his money focuses his life on obtaining truth and how to get to truth and this guy was just a strange dude i like him though and not
0: great people skills by all accounts no
3: no,
1: and he he also he also designed a house too. Like he he got into like architecture and interior design for a while and like designed a house for one of his sisters, I think. And it took him so long cuz he was so obsessive about every single detail. Like even like the height between like where the door handle is and like the bottom and like the way the windows open and he would spend like months at a time just like obsessing over like each of these fine details.
3: Oh yeah, he w- he went into engineering and ed- aeronautics at first. He even designed a jet engine. like He he did all kinds of stuff like that, too. Terry Terry. Eagleton, uh, who actually
2: uh, produced a movie on Wittgenstein that was quite good, um, eccentric, but quite good, uh, Tilda Swinton said it, had this this kind of curious anecdote where Cambridge was kind of in a weird situation at the beginning uh, and the middle of the 20th century, where they were just starting to accept some working class um, applicants and giving them scholarships to study there. And apparently... People got furious at him because whenever Wittgenstein had a working class student who would come in because they were trying to aspire to a kind of higher quality of life by coming to an institution of this caliber, he'd sit there and be like, why are you doing that? You should just go back and work in your motorcycle factory because that was a much more pure quality of life than what you found here. Uh, It was a mistake for your parents to send you here. So then you'd have all these working class students just going back to their houses being like, well, I talked to like the greatest living philosopher at Cambridge and he told me that what we're doing is just fine. And the parents would just write these furious letters to Cambridge being like, the fuck are you doing? Like, we saved money for decades to send our son here, and now you're telling me that we shouldn't bother to begin with? Like, the hell?
3: Yeah, she he was, was st- known for having little strategies to thin out his students like that. <laughs> He's one of the first ideas-don't-matter philosophers.
2: Yeah, that's true. Sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I think it's
1: interesting that Pills, you kind of said he switched teams, And I think like he probably wouldn't I don't even know if like was the analytic continental divide like the way that they framed it back then. Like I know because it's not like he started reading Heidegger and stuff like that. He just kind of was like, I'm not I'm not going to care about like logical foundations or at least they're like not going to be findable. So, you know, but I think a lot of analytic philosophers still kind of claim them. I always remember this story when I was an undergrad. I had this like really eccentric like Swiss Italian professor Eros Corazza, and he would always talk shit. So he was a philosopher of language, and he'd always like warn his undergrad students. He'd be like, Wittgenstein is very important, but you have to be careful because he gets co-opted by French bullshitters.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, his last, say, like, his <laughs> last work on certainty one, one of something derived from lectures near the end of his life, that's been interpreted as an anti-enlightenment statement because he, he talks about the, the enlightenment demand for certainty and he believed that certainty was never possible. And so that's taken as a kind of postmodern, like very early post, like the 50s might even be too, way too early for talking about postmodernism in, in philosophy, but he seemed to be almost like a precursor in that sort of way. He questioned certainty in his later career. But earlier on, obviously in the Tractatus and his work with Russell, he was very much in the logical positivist tradition which is is a new land that I am parachuting into. So take take what I say with a grain of salt, but I'm, I'm on the journey. <laughs> Have you guys tried to read the Tractatus?
2: Yeah. I mean, I read if, about if you, 30 if,
0: pages if, of it, but it was brutal. Yeah, if, if you're yeah. not
2: familiar with the logical notation, then a lot of the technical details um, aren't really of much value. But I think the overall message is really interesting. And there's no doubt that like, A lot of it is actually just beautifully written. I mean, there are passages in it that are not just evocative, but I would say haunting. Uh, Like people tend to remember very distinctly, even the introduction, but certainly the ending passages uh, about what of what one cannot speak, one must pass over in silence, uh, or the opening kind of assertion that the world is all that is the case. Um, I think it's like a beautiful book in a lot of ways.
3: Yeah, he
0: was a great stylist. Well, Wittgenstein himself hated it and only referred to the author himself in third person by the end of his life and rejected yeah. it. He wrote he he wrote critiques of his own book, several,
2: yeah. I mean, and people pointed out that in some ways, he is distinct in the history of philosophy in that respect because while most philosophers who have lengthy careers can be periodized, and you talk about the early Heidegger or the late Heidegger. Uh, but Wittgenstein, developed two pretty distinct philosophies, which are quite fundamentally incompatible with one another. Uh, although I would argue that there is an overlap, in fact, a very serious overlap between uh, the two outlooks. And very much uh, in keeping with like the spirit of what Pills was talking about, because I think the one continuous theme you see throughout his work is the idea that philosophy doesn't really matter all that much. Uh, it's a kind of idle, unimportant discipline. Uh, And he just goes about proving that in very different ways in the early period and the late period.
3: That quote you brought up
0: is really central. (laughs) Just to establish kind of, because I'm sure there's people listening who have never heard of this guy before, but we're talking about kind of Eric's area actually, but logic plus language plus truth. How does language lead to truth? How do you use language? Can language even get to truth? And then how do we use language? And, and play it in different areas of life. So Wittgenstein wrote this best book of analytic philosophy of language, which is early Wittgenstein. And then late Wittgenstein, he becomes more of a, I think the term that's usually used is he's a philosopher of everyday life or everyday language. And the meaning of language comes from its practical use, the way ordinary people use it. And the philosophers, what they have to say about language, is most of the time wrong. So that's our that's our division split here. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: I'd like to put it even more basically, which is if you've seen that scene in Arrival, where <laughs> the guy. Um, is telling, you know, the linguist, like, look, just ask them the question. Like, why are you here? It's really straightforward. We don't need you to like diddle daddle around with like all this word shit. And she sits there and she's like, OK. And then under words a word, why? And it's like, so what does exactly this mean? You know, it could be that I'm asking them a motivation question. It could also mean that I'm asking them a verbal question uh, about the basis for their action. Then kind of goes through that. Wittgenstein is that kind of guy where you want to ask yourself these big, highfalutin questions. And he's always there saying, eh, "I'm not exactly sure that we're even capable uh, of doing that. At least not in the kind of way uh, that philosophers who don't pay attention to language want to be able to ask those questions."
0: Yeah, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Eric give me some of the frame here. But uh, Philosophical Investigations opens up with what Wittgenstein calls the kind of Western view of of philosophy and language, and he quotes. Augustine, Saint Augustine, and Augustine's theory of language. Of course, it's written in whatever three hundred, um, kind of rudimentary. He says there are things in the world, and there are names of those things in the world, and then we group up sentences of names, and that's what language is.
3: I think we're uh, if if we're gonna begin by looking at his later stuff. I, I, I tried to just get a broad overview when I was try when I was researching this, so I didn't focus in on I think it'd probably the- be
2: better to kind of start early and then move forward, don't you think? Because it's hard to understand the later work unless you understand what he's responding to. It's not
0: true. Yeah, it- look, 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 look. I'm playing host duty, so here's my strategy for this. We're going to open up with his opening from, yeah, a later book. But that whole opening of the later book brings up... First of all, what is this overview Western understanding of what language is beginning with Augustine? And then he'll go on to say, oh, and by the way, I finished off that view. I I brought that view as far as it could go. So I think if we just start with the kind of what has language been thought to be? One end of that, he puts himself as the bookend, and then he brings it into somewhere completely different. So yes, I am starting with a late book but he's talking about he's giving a historical overview and putting himself in it that's why i brought that up and of course the the common view would be this representational or correspondence theory and then his new and then his own contradiction of that is going to be with something called
3: language games yeah yeah well language games yeah when you you that really indicates his later work but if you look at his earlier work the the main thing is his picture theory of language that's what runs through the tractatus and the the picture theory of language is is something he sort of develops off of the basis of of you know principia mathematica whitehead and uh, russell's three volume works um i'm not sure if the all three volumes are out but it, by the time he was reading them but he, he wrote that early work, the Tractatus, over seven years, right? And during the 1910s, it was published just before 19 or around 1920. And then he kind of just l- fucked off and like went and left Cambridge and left England for a long time and didn't come back. But that didn't that he go to Austria work. and
0: like beat school children?
3: <laughs> yeah, like he got involved <laughs> in World War One. He was, he volunteered to fight. He, then he wanted to become a school teacher and he taught elementary level students for a while, which was, a, but constantly I saw in his letters, he's constantly complaining about Austria being very sort of, the people are all disheartened and nobody seems to have any kind of spirit. He can't talk to anybody. He felt very isolated, but that's all background information. the The Tractatus is really like this picture theory of language where where pictures correspond to states of affairs what he calls facts and uh i mean you gotta you really gotta know if you want to read this book you've got to be really familiar with the logical notation that that bertrand russell and and um and alfred whitehead come up with for their for their uh principia mathematica so it's you know the tractatus. You know, if you take any couple things from it, so far from what I've seen, you should take that it's based on this picture theory, which Ramsey describes a, a, in his review of it. Uh, Ramsey's another young, brilliant guy from Cambridge. He says a picture is a fact, and as such has a structure and a form. You know, so it, it has a there's a form of representation, and that makes possible structure of representation. And the, the elements of the representation correspond to the elements or objects involved in the fact. So it was a kind of correspondence theory of truth as well in his picture theory. And, of course, Matt brought up that very important quote. Um, you know, we can say uh, – very roughly paraphrasing it, you know, there are certain things we can put in the form of of philosophical propositions, logical propositions, and there are certain things we cannot put into logical propositions. Those things that we cannot, those are things we must remain silent on. So, and, and Wittgenstein kind of said that he'd completed all of the problems of philosophy after this tractatus that was his his self-evaluation of the work is that he had finished philosophy that he <laughs> f- solved all the problems and that now we could get on to other things because the tractatus solved all the problems what you cannot speak of in the form of logical propositions according to the picture theory those are just things that we can't speak about they're they're the silence they're the they're something you know religion, values, ethics, all sorts of things, right? He was kind of a semanticist at this point before he became interested in pragmatics of language later in his life, right?
2: Well, this is why I want to say I think the book is something of a literary masterpiece, though, because it is structured in an extraordinary way. And uh, in a sense that his later books are not, because they were all published posthumously and other people had to organize them and they were never completed to his satisfaction. But what's remarkable about this book uh, is he runs through this brilliant logical argument talking about the picture theory of language, basically describing how it is that words can hook on to the world uh, and provides you with the correspondence theory, not just of language, uh, but of knowledge. And then at the end of it, he says, if you really think about it, what's interesting about my book is the fact that my philosophy itself is nonsensical, according to the terms that I've laid out within it, because what I'm doing isn't describing a state of affairs in the world, but describing how it is that language can represent a state of affairs in the world, which is not the same kind of thing. Ergo, my approach is rather like a ladder. That's the metaphor he uses. So once you understand how pointless this entire exercise I just engaged in is, (laughs) you drop the ladder aside and you can see more clearly. And what you also recognize, as Eric put it very beautifully, is that a lot of the kind of things that I just described as nonsensical. Um, Ethics, aesthetics, religion, uh, all the kind of stuff that we really want to know about can never be said according to this philosophy, which is another reason why we should chuck this philosophy and just dedicate ourselves with a kind of quiet dignity uh, towards approaching life with an aesthetic and ethical sensibility uh, that can never be put in the terms that are demanded by certainty. Uh, And a lot of people didn't really get this snake-like quality to the book, where it eventually swallows uh, itself at the end. Uh, And he allegedly got into these huge arguments with people at the Vienna School who appreciated the first two-thirds of it and said, yeah, we really want to carry on with exactly this project, just tinker a bit around the edges. Uh, And he said, you know, you've entirely missed the point of it. You shouldn't be reading people like Popper uh, or following all this kind of scientific BS. Read Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard instead. They'll tell you where the real action in life is. Uh, And, you know, they were all just like, who are you exactly? You're not exactly the guy that we thought you were going to be.
3: Yeah, he picked picked up a book during the war, right? That Tolstoy. I think he picked up a Tolstoy book during the war and it changed him and, and sort of shifted him into a more... Uh, into being interested in questions of mystical well, and religious topics. He famously
2: said that Kierkegaard was the deepest person who had ever lived, far too deep for him, uh, and kind of made the same kind of comment that Dostoevsky made, or sorry, uh, Nietzsche made about Dostoevsky, that Kierkegaard was far too deep for him, uh, and he was one of the few people that he could learn from uh, in terms of his own personal philosophy of life. And it's really quite telling. Right. Uh, But again, I think the book is a literary masterpiece because it really does end on this remarkable kind of self-swallowing moment uh, where you are just amazed at the kind of intellectual audacity of what's been achieved. Uh, And then he seems immediately willing to discard it and saying, why bother with that? Let's move on to something else.
1: Well, I was just going to say, I I think one thing that would be interesting to maybe do actually in a future episode, if we want to do more Wittgenstein is like, because what he ends up going with, I think, in the investigations is to basically argue that when you do an analysis of like the way language functions in everyday life a lot of the traditional philosophical problems of like the history of philosophy dissolve and that's what a lot of people call like the therapeutic approach to philosophy which is almost, which I think is kind of an interesting topic in itself that could be explored which is like in what way is philosophy therapeutic uh, rather than trying to like find fundamental questions of reality instead it's supposed to You know, and I find it interesting that he would use that language, you know, uh, act as a kind of therapy so that we can stop stressing. Because I think that one of the things given his personality type that drove Wittgenstein crazy was like this thirst for truth and that he can like settle the questions. And then he and then when he realized he couldn't, it makes sense to me that he'd be like, well, no, no. So philosophy is not about truth anymore. It's about therapy. It's about making me not have to worry about these dumb problems. Like, what is truth? you know, what is reality? Like these these questions that he, uh, uh, he describes as being language going on holidays, right? That you're using language in a way where it's not tied to its everyday use. And that's what he thinks philosophy traditionally is like asking these weird questions that don't belong, um, that make us think there's like this deep question to be solved. But really, we need to do philosophy to make us realize that there is no question there, that it's just... And, you know, that might be an episode topic of its own, but I thought it's kind of an interesting shift. Uh, And I think a lot of the shift can be framed as kind of psychological in a way.
0: And one of the the most common quotes or uh, statements that he made was, if we understood what language actually is, I don't know if he says 90%. I have it in my head as 90%, but he said 90% of philosophy would just disappear into irrelevance if we actually understood what. We're doing with the material there. And of course, anyone who read the first two thirds of the Tractatus uh, doesn't want to hear in the last chapter, oh, by the way, um, it's done now. And that was bullshit. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I I will say there's a really famous anecdote um, that I think is true because Ray Monk and Terry Eagleton both pointed out, which is apparently Piero Straffa uh, had been reading Gramsci at the time. Uh, And when Wittgenstein was defending his picture theory of language to Straffa, I think it was Straffa, uh, Straffa kind of gave him the middle finger and he's like, what is the picture behind this? And it drove Wittgenstein nuts because he just wasn't able to figure out a way to actually link that to his theory in a way that would settle the whole thing. Uh, And apparently went off on a round um, of threatening to kill himself unless he could actually figure out the way to incorporate uh, the meaning behind this gesture into the picture theory of language and then decided to give it up.
3: Uh, there is a kind of through line between his earlier and later stuff in the sense that when you read the Tractatus, you get the sense that, you know, all of philosophy's problems are caused by words being used with different meanings, right? Equivocation through words. He thinks that's where most of ph- philosophical issues come from. So, you know, he, he words are a kind of component of propositions. And in that first phase in the Tractatus, he wants to take all the propositions and reduce them to a kind of atomic, a set of atomic propositions which would point to these atomic facts. You can then, this is sort of Russell's logical atomism coming through. So there is already a sense that all of philosophy's problems come through equivocation in the use of words. And we have to understand words, If you know, if you walk into a room and just say green, hat, bug, like you can't use disconnected words. You have to form proposition, subject, predicate, saying something about something. And then later on, you know, you get the more sense that, the equivocation comes from what Gilbert Ryle will call category mistakes, where you use words from one language game and you mix them up with words from another language game. So you can, I, I heard this great example, you can, you can describe the game of cricket, the British game of cricket, right? As It has it bowlers, it has wickets, it has the batter, it has the, the mound, it has all that stuff. Uh, but then you talk about, but then what about team spirit and then there, okay, you have a category mistake. Team spirit is not a part of the game. Team spirit is part of a different language game. And if you try to bring team spirit into the description of cricket, you're going to be making this category mistake. And so one of the things is to separate language into these individual language games. What is team team spirit or team spirit Nirvana?
0: What I don't get what you mean Not by that. Not Nirvana. I don't get what you mean by the connection, though. You mean the
3: cricket well, players yeah. have team spirit? Well, that's the th- that's the problem, right? It doesn't make sense in the context of the game of cricket. What is the game of cricket? As players, it has batters. It has these this and that. Does it have team spirit? No, because that's a totally different that's a totally different language game. When we're discussing things like motivation, team spirit, cohesiveness. Those, that's a different language game it's a category mistake to say team spirit is part of the description of what cricket is
2: what you find with this guy argument that we do in kind of philosophical anthropology uh, is a kind of anti-essentialist claim uh not just about you know what it is that language does but also about who human beings are uh, because it's rejecting the idea that we have what wordy card a kind of glassy essence uh, and that the primary thing we do with language is just painted description of the world, a picture of the world, if you will. Uh, Wittgenstein says that sometimes that is what we're doing with words. We're just describing the world, uh, and we're trying to describe it as accurately as possible. Uh, But that's not what we're doing. We're we're playing a language game, like going on a date with someone and talking about how you feel about them, or even describing a game of football, right, that you might happen to witness, Uh, but also talking about how you felt at the game, right? There are different kind of Uses that we put words to in those circumstances. And so again, the job of philosopher then is to just engage in a kind of higher order reflection uh, On the different way that these games are played uh, But not to criticize them uh, or to say that they're not representing the world accurately Just to understand the meaning that these different words assume in these forms of life.
1: Well, it isn't isn't but isn't the broader point that he's making that like the picture theory of language has like a, a tries to offer like a logical positivist account of like what language is that there's like but then i think that like what he's trying to do later is to be like well you're not going to find the answer of like what language is in its essence by just looking at it as like logical positivism which is i thought where he comes in with like the meaning of a language is 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 the is to, uh, to understand the form of life and like form of life is i think this an important concept and like he he makes a couple moves in the investigation to kind of argue why like your kind of logical positivist story of language is just being like a symbol to like describe the world breaks down and that like language is actually rooted to like an intersubjective social element that like you can't talk about language without talking about that and like that's where for example something like the private language which maybe it's too much to get into now but i know pills you sent us a little summary about private language and basically what he's doing there is just saying that like it would be impossible to come up with a private language in your mind where only you knew the meanings of the words because fundamentally language requires another to, to, to have reciprocity with. And like one of the ways he argues for that is he says, how would you even know that that was the meaning of the word that you decided? You might forget if it's private, there's no uh, criteria of reliability that you need another. It has to be social.
0: Otherwise, it's meaningless. I just wanna slow this down and just get to the term language game. It's the main term and it will kind of uh, explicate this. So this representational view of language that we have words that refers to a world, that is never gonna get at what the essence, or I shouldn't say that word, that's actually a wrong word. It won't get to the meaning of words. If we wanna find out what the meaning of words are, we need to look at how they're used And how they're being used at a specific time. So he gives like 60 examples of different language games. And philosophy is one of those. Philosophy is not like to be thrown out. It's an activity. It has its rules. Analytic philosophy is like doing a Sudoku puzzle, I guess. But also (laughs) when you go into a bar to order a beer, that's also a language game. And they have different rules. So it's, it's... not rude to just walk up to a, a bartender and start the sentence, um, "Yo, can I get a Miller Lite?" In any other context, you know, your your wife comes home from work. If the first thing you said to her was, uh, "Yo, can I get a Miller Lite?", uh, it, it, it wouldn't work in that game. That game would would fall apart. But if you're ordering a Miller Lite, you're probably an asshole anyway.
2: So, I mean, maybe if you're living in like Sunnydale tri- Trailer Park, uh, that wouldn't be like. Out of uh, pra- like unkeeping, but I want to say absolutely, yeah. And I no, mean, this I, is I'm not done yet. I'm not done
0: yet. It's not just okay. about rudeness and and acceptability. It's about like there is a code that makes things sensible in contexts that you can't just move to a different context. And his critique, the general critique of this representational kind of uh, language use, you could just call the whole history of philosophies. Pretty pretty much that. Of course, there's exceptions, but it's like we're we're sitting there in our chair wondering what is a concept, and then giving a whole bunch of explanations, definitions of what a concept is, furnishing it with examples, and then you have like a a Descartes book, for example. But what Descartes is doing, according to Wittgenstein, late Wittgenstein, is taking all these other words that belong to different language games where their meaning is quite clear, like Miller light has a very clear meaning and then trying to move them all over into philosophy and then they're bastardized they are taken out of their home and then you can basically do whatever you want with them and it's not useless sometimes you can get like uh insights or interesting theories from from doing that but you're never going to get to what is language if you only do philosophy you just you have to go to a bar there you go (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
2: and I think, again, there's a nice anti-foundationalist dimension to this because I think that you're right in saying that one can do philosophy if one is willing to be a kind of humble philosopher and engage in the kind of philosophical anthropology that you're just describing, right? Asking yourself, what is the meaning of the word Miller Lite, Miller Lite in the context of going to the bar and offer and asking for, frankly, a mediocre beer, right? But the problem in the history of philosophy, as he understands it— uh, and Philosophical investigations has some ruminations on this, although it becomes clearer in uncertainty, is that philosophy can have this kind of imperial ambition where what the philosopher will do is either try to appropriate the different words from different forms of life and say, this is what people think they mean, but this is what they really mean. If we break them down and analyze them carefully enough, or even worse, it'll say things like people are going to church and they're talking about things like God or the soul. Uh, And they're making metaphysical or cosmological claims to that in that respect. And these are actually just nonsensical claims. Uh, They're basically doing, from a Popperian perspective, let's use that example, shitty science. And Wittgenstein is going to say, no, Uh, if you look at the claims made by somebody who is talking about the book of Genesis in church and say they're just doing shitty science, like Richard Dawkins, right? Uh, Then you fundamentally misunderstand, he thinks at least, that they're just playing a very different kind of language game. Than what Richard Dawkins is doing when he's writing a book about selfish genes or Stephen Hawking is doing when he's
1: writing about uh, black holes. Well, isn't also one of the points, though, that like to get like more concrete about like philosophical problems that he thinks are like kind of nonsense in a result of language. It's like, okay, like you use this word truth or you use this word mind in everyday language to like refer to something really specific. That's like contextual to like, oh, I'm losing my mind. And it means... You know, that like you're all out of sorts and you're confused or like you, you know, but then, you know, philosophers come about and be like, well, what is mind? What is it? Right. And then like, I think one of the points that Wittgenstein is trying to make by dissolving these philosophical problems is to be like, no, there's no mystery here. Like, like the way that you're posing that question is making it seem like there's some ontological question of like, what is a mind? when really it's just a word that's being used in specific context to mean something very contextual and philosophers are coming along and fucking it up just like truth, right? Like, yeah, that's it. Truth. Like a lot of more modern philosophers who are definitely inspired by Wittgenstein take this approach to like deflationary approach to be like, there is no philosophical confusion here. You're just confusing. You're using the word in a different context. Like Simon Blackburn, I think has this deflationary view of truth. And he says, you know, to understand what truth is, all you need to ask is like, what's at stake here? Like, is it like, so for example, you could just say, you know, whatever, this person is guilty of murder. And you don't need to say is true at the end of that statement, because all you need to say is the statement itself. But then philosophers come in and be like, Oh, there's this property that is truth. That's like a mystery that we like have to understand. And I think Wittgensteinian, Uh, Inspired approaches to philosophy say that that doesn't that that's just a confusion over like how the words are used in different language games and truth just means something contextual and it's there's not going to be some capital T truth. Uh,
3: That's just like a weird confusion as a result of our misusing language, I think. Yeah, and it's not even it's not even philosophy's job to look at the truth of statements, right? Like that famous example, the cat is on the mat Right. The point of that is that the logical structure of that proposition would mirror the logical structure of the fact, right? A a fact is a state of affairs. And so the state of affairs would be mirrored in the statement the cat is on the mat. And the role of philosophy is really just to clarify the use of words. So a question like, just to expand what Victor was saying, a question like "what the what is the meaning of life?" like that kind of question, it's not that that question is not important. It's it's actually even more that question is meaningless. It has there's no sense to that question, and that this is the early Wittgenstein, because there's no empirical verifiability to the question of what is the meaning of life. You can't bring it into an empirical analysis but later on i imagine wittgenstein would say questions like what is the meaning of life or you know that would be like a language game you'd play in a religious setting you get a, you'd be discussing the meaning of life in you know a religious context but in a scientific context that question doesn't come on cuz science still uses empirical observations and principles of verification, it's a totally different language game. If you ask a scientist to solve the question of what is the meaning of life, they can't do it. They might try to do it, but the, but really it's not part of their language game. And you'd be confusing categories and mixing up words from different language games and then creating that confusion again that the whole project is supposed to dispel. I,
2: I would argue though that even in the tractatus, you do see this kind of attitude. Uh, so for instance, you know, he has these remarkable ending sentences, where he talks about how, in the Tractatus, the answer to the riddle of space and time is to be found outside of space and time, right? Uh, and so one of the ways that we can kind of approach the question of the meaning of life is to recognize that the quest for certainty uh, on the meaning of life is itself meaningless, uh, and that the closer you get, the more you'll realize that the whole endeavor is senseless, you know, the router that you have to throw away. Uh, and so once you've kind of come to this standpoint, uh, you can approach questions, uh, like what should I set myself towards, uh, with a level of wisdom uh, and a capacity for self reflection that you didn't have before, right? So again, I would even interpret the Tractatus as Wittgenstein, offering a kind of therapeutic aid to people who need certainty on the question of what the meaning of life is, because it kind of shows you that this is as close as you can get. And then you realize you're never going to get there when it comes to all the important things. So just drop it right? Move on, uh, dissolve the kind of problem. And what he says uh, in the philosophical investigations is that this is a kind of nonsensical way of looking at things, Uh, that the idea that you can just create ever more philosophical rules that will tell you how to use words properly so that you can kind of move from a very general level of speaking about things to a particular level uh, while speaking about things with absolute certainty. Uh, it's never going to come about because there are a wide variety of different rules uh, that you can use when speaking about things. And he makes the argument that these are set by social uh, demands, not by anything like an aspiration towards truth or or certainty. So, you know, again, to use Pell's example of Miller Lite, uh, when I ask myself, how can I be certain I will get a Miller Lite? Uh, If you just go to some random person on the street and say, give me a Miller Lite, then we know because of social rules that that person is going to say, what the fuck are you doing, right? Uh, And we would say that if you want to get a Miller Lite, you go to a bar and there is a rule in that social setting that if you make the statement, I would like a Miller Lite, the bartender will give it to you. Uh, But that's not a true statement, Uh, a rule that gets you closer to the truth of something. Uh, It's just in recognition that this is the social convention that we've established when it comes to the use of those words in that particular situation.
0: So philosophy, or at least the philosophy of language, is in this sense kind of parasitical on common life, everyday life, but then pretends like it's not. And then it calls itself, you know, the, the queen of the sciences or or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's just, he's saying, if you ask, like, how do we get to truth in language? You've already shot yourself in the foot. You're, that's There's no answer to that question. That's not what language is for. And I just wanted to bring up with respect to rules and why he says language games in the first place it's kind of a nightmare to come up if you if you ask we're, we're talking about what is truth what is the meaning of life all these deep questions but he he just asks the question what is a game there's no way of answering the question what is a game because there are so many different types of games there are you know card games the Olympic games um, if if kids are just throwing a ball against a wall, that's also considered a game. And then the my, the first answer is well, it's something that there are rules to. And he he goes through the example of every possible response to what is a game and kind of says, well, it doesn't apply in this case, it doesn't apply in this case. Like if if a kids are throwing a ball against the wall, yeah, it's a game. Are there any rules there? No. If you're if you're playing a game, can I who can throw the ball the highest? It counts as a game, I think everyone would say. But there's no rules there. Um, is a game fun? Well, if you're a, if it's your job, are, are you having fun with it? Is it always fun? If you're like one of these dudes grinding um, Dota or something, are they having fun every single time they play? So anyway, anytime you try to give, here's the final definition of game, you're always going to find an exception to that rule. And then he says... Um, this is where the term family resemblances, which I'm sure people have heard with reference to, to Wittgenstein, is. And he says the meaning of terms comes in this vast socially created network of resemblances. Some things are true in one case, not in another, but it's a shifting, uh, vague, fuzzy sort of conceptual web that underscores language, not a clear picture. As someone like Frege would have said, Frege said, like, if you if you got a fuzzy concept, then it's not a real concept. And B- Wittgenstein's response to that is, well, if you say, go stand roughly over there, that's a completely acceptable use of language to say, go stand somewhere over there. And there's no clear reference. Somewhere over there is not clear. So that's where the that's why we say games that's the other term family resemblance which I would be remiss if we didn't actually just touch on in this episode
1: yeah no that's important and i think um you know there's a word that actually i don't think has come up yet is pragmatism and uh, which I know Eric is you know heavily involved Uh-oh. in and I think there's a way in which you could call this Eric's breathing faster a, pra- a pragmatic view of language in the sense that like really what it's pointing to is if you want to understand language you have to look at what is it doing right like that's the whole point of like connecting into forms of life but I did want to actually point out I was looking in the book I've got my copy of the investigations right here and I was looking for like one of my favorite aphorisms which really speaks to what pills was just talking about and what I really like about it is he's kind of confessing his own intellectual and psychological struggle with what he was trying to do in the Tractatus. And then what he realizes he needs to do, which is to like, really bring out the pragmatic use of language, the way it's connected to just like everyday ways of doing things. So aphorism 107, um, he says, the more closely we examine actual language, the greater becomes the conflict between it and our requirement, for the crystalline purity of logic was of course, not something I had discovered. It was a requirement, right? So he's saying he needed language to be logical. And then he says the, the, the conflict becomes intolerable. The requirement is now in danger of becoming vacuous. We've got onto slippery ice where there is no friction. And so in a certain sense, the conditions are ideal, but also just because of that, we are unable to walk. We want to walk, so we need friction. Back to the rough ground. So I think what he's saying there, right, is like you're looking for this logical structure where, just like what Pills was talking about, where like you want to find the perfect referent to everything. But then when you like look at it, you're like, well, I can't do anything with this. Like it's not actually showing me the the kind of truth about how language functions, which is like pragmatic. It's vague, right? That's the, the example that Pills used, right? Go stand over there. It's like not giving you... So it's kind of rough, right? It's not this beautiful, pure structure because it's so rooted in its context. So I think that's an interesting... And I, and, I th- and the Investigations, by the way, is full of these examples where it's written in aphorisms where you can see him kind of like coming to this admission that what he was looking for before doesn't make sense. And this emphasis on just like, well, look at how the language actually works in practice.
3: Yeah, I, I suggested earlier that you could understand what Wittgenstein was doing in the Tractatus as a, as a kind of semantics, whereas what he's doing in the in the later work uh, is a kind of pragmatics of language, right? If you're familiar with Charles Morris's famous distinction, in, what, what was it? Uh, syntactics, semantics, and pragmatics, right? Focus on the first two, leave pragmatics out. Wittgenstein moved into the pragmatics sphere in his later thing. And, and, and he read William James's v- varieties of religious experience. And, and he was in contact with other people who were familiar with the pragmatist tradition as well. And I think that influenced him after the Tractatus to move towards this, you know, meaning Instead of a picture theory of meaning, it's the meaning of words is meaning in use, or he says most words anyway. So 90%, 99%, who knows?
2: Yeah, and there's this no social dimension to this, because uh, I really like his depiction of philosophers as obsessed with making language into a rule-governed activity uh, and framing it in that way. You know, you think about somebody like Kant. You can see Kant is basically saying, well, if you want to talk about... Empirical objects. Then I've devised these rules. You have to follow them, right? You can't just talk about things in themselves. I'm telling you that you need to describe them uh, in transcendental terms, uh, or you can think about the logical positivist is doing something that's analogous to this, right? If you want to talk about objects, uh, then they need to be talked about. We need to talk about objects of sense. We can't talk about nonsensical things like God or spirituality or aesthetics or whatever. All that's pushed aside, and The quote that Victor is coming up with uh, is really nice because he's saying, why approach the study of language that way? Why be somebody who's there to give rules to social life, especially because that seems so removed from a lot of the purposes that people actually use their language for? And it seems to be working. You know, you go to the bar, you want a Miller Light, and you say, I'd like a Miller Light, please, because you have shitty taste in beer. And lo and behold, all of a sudden you have one, probably five, because that's what it takes to enjoy it, right?
0: (laughs) What's wrong with you? All, that? You why? can only enjoy the sixth. <laughs> only enjoy the sixth. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like, why sit there and bring Emmanuel Kant into this and have him say, "Well, you know, when he was talking about that Miller light, he wasn't really talking about a Miller light in and of itself. He was talking about the phenomena of Miller light. There might be a Miller light there, but there might not be. It just seems well, like think, kind of a waste of time." Right? Well, I think also this,
1: this is this. this is why my, my one of my professors in undergrad kind of like my mentor into continental philosophy she taught wittgenstein as a phenomenologist the investigations at yeah, least yeah. like she said that he was you know that what he's doing is a phenomenology of like the way language actually functions in practice that I mean that's a bit of a of another story but just what you were saying there makes me think about um just like see take it up on its own terms right like what what is it doing
0: uh, and i think that in a way is a phenomenological task And this is why he kind of, I I said at the beginning, oh, he's on our team. Because I kind of think he is in the sense that like, it's not like philosophy ended because Wittgenstein was like, you know, all these problems are fake. But what the French guys kind of connect with him in terms of uh, semiotics, what they connect with him on is the emphasis becomes no longer, how do we use philosophy to correctly describe the world? the question kind of shifts to what can we do with language to think better, to make people think better? And that doesn't mean think more accurately. It means like, what is what is literature? How do we include literature in, in philosophy? So I'm thinking, of course, of someone like Deleuze. Deleuze is like, I'm going to use language for everything it can do. But his concern is never like, am I accurately describing I mean, that's not fair to say. The main concern, I should say, is not, am I accurately describing the thing that I'm purporting to describe with my uh, syllogisms?
2: Well, I would say that there are definitely analytical ways of taking this up. And in Oxbridge, Oxbridge, uh, they immediately did so with ordinary language philosophy, which produced, I think, some very boring work, personally, Uh, but it was important, right? And they gave a very English approach to the kind of deconstructive or deflationary views of the world uh, that you were describing. You know, uh, RM Hare uh, was a moral theorist and Derek Parfit once asked him, like, I'm concerned about the meaning of life. And RM Hare was like, look around you. Do you see something called meaning in any of the objects out there? Do you see ordinary people concerned about these questions of meaning? See, meaning of life is no problem. Stop wasting your time with like Sartre and all those other kind of fruity French people and just focus on analyzing propositions according to like this ordinary language lens. Right, So you can definitely give this a kind of banal uh, reading in the sense that all we're doing is trying to dissolve philosophical publes, uh, puzzles to more or less leave the world as it is. Uh, and there's kind of conservative quality to this. I just think that the French interpretation you're giving, Pills, is more interesting and more exciting. Uh, and probably also more in keeping with the spirit of Wittgenstein himself, who, whatever else he was, uh, wasn't going to become a nice bourgeois kind of, you know word muncher you know he was always going to have a deeper project underpinning anything that he was doing
0: yeah if people took Wittgenstein seriously there would be no philosophy department (laughs) he would (laughs) just read literature
1: maybe maybe i don't know about that but i was gonna say though like on this idea of him being like on our team kind of i think i mean i think there's a certain extent which i agree with that i mean i think that's (laughs) true but i also think like There are a a whole bunch of still who consider themselves analytic philosophers, alive and dead, who we could also say are on our team, too, because they do accept kind of that anti-foundationalist. Like, good examples would be like Donald Davidson or like John McDowell. Like, these are people who and very much and richard rory who's i mean he really did switch teams like even like i would say self-described in a way he switched teams but there's like mcdowell and davidson who are people who never switch teams were always analytic philosophers but i think like in terms of their philosophical commitments to like what is the nature of language and truth and foundations i think they are on our team as well in yeah. the same way that wittgenstein is yeah
0: davidson just for an example davidson Basically, said all language is metaphoric. You'd, you're you're never gonna get to the the underside of language. It's a, which is something that's close to you know différence or something like that.
3: Yeah, I also got the sense of kind of later Wittgenstein being almost parallel to certain continental themes in various ways. But it's all very superficial in my head right now. I don't know, because, you know, like the early Wittgenstein could be compared to structuralism and their sort of privileging of scientific discourse. It becomes a kind of master discourse into which everything either has to be dissolved or thrown out if it can't be dissolved into it. And then later, he seems to give license to the idea of, well, this idea of, of meaning in use and language being a social phenomenon at its core seems to give license to the more sort of you know deridian kind of spirit where meaning is constantly deferred right you never get there you never get to the end point it kind of just keeps going round and round in circles and we can't get a sense of it we can't get an idea of it it just kind of slips between the cracks all the time but i mean any any further than that i don't think i could go i don't think wittgenstein is completely skeptical of that words have meanings. I think he believes words have meanings. I think there's a bit of controversy over whether Wittgenstein actually arrives at a kind of Humean skepticism, or whether that's just a kind of cheap interpretation to kind of hold Wittgenstein back from going full Pomo. (laughs) But um, otherwise, I mean, he does seem to lurch very far in the direction of a kind of, you know, critique of enlightenment, critique of meaning as kind of authorial intent versus how meaning works in the world. But beyond that, you know, I, I can't travel. I, I, I must wonder, remain silent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder whether uh, an intro, a good like sequel episode to this would be, because I know though, you know, when I think about that professor from my undergrad who talked about being careful about the French bullshitters. I wonder if, like, the good French bullshitter for us to look at would be the very short book, The Postmodern Condition, right? By, uh, what's Leotard. the name, the French guy? Leotard, because that's a pretty short book, and I'm pretty sure a big theme in that is language games, is it not? He does discuss Wittgenstein a lot,
2: yeah. I mean, uh, there's also Alan Bidjoe, who wrote a pretty influential book uh, describing Wittgenstein as the kind of peak anti-philosopher.
1: Anyway, but I, that's, just a, that's just an idea, because I know it's a pretty short book, and, like, it might be, uh... I wouldn't mind revisiting it yeah that sounds good uh,
0: i don't like uh, this i I I don't like like that characterization that he's anti-philosophy because he obviously is not um and i can't i can't really recall bad argument but he said he's one of the the three great anti-philosophers but what wittgenstein said is philosophy has a purpose it's just not what almost all philosophers think it is which is we're explaining something (laughs) we're not trying to explain something we're trying to clarify problems but most of the time philosophy just makes problems out of nothing cuz they're they're not referencing outside of their discipline they're trying to uh force language to do something that language just does not do they're using
3: a the wrong tool yeah i mean uh, it, there is a certain sense in which his in which philosophy during this period is conceived in a very very narrow sense right right that's true. you do think of philosophy as you know, we think of philosophy as a kind of set of statements about a way of life, a worldview, something like bigger, right? Philo- like, what's your philosophy, man? Like, like, what's your philosophy about life versus this version of philosophy, which is, which is. Very, very narrowly focused on clarifying the meaning of words. Like Cambridge and, philosophy. And, and philosophy yeah. is almost like a, a handmaiden that runs around and cleans up the messes that all the other disciplines are making out of language because that's, you know, that's what you get with a philosophy focused on language as opposed to philosophy in a broader sense, right? Because remember, this is the era. Oh, well, Wittgenstein came up in the era of of very stringent anti-metaphysics, right? You, metaphysics is the enemy. It must go. Like, what was it? The big positivist A.J. Iyer writes in the, right in the beginning of the book, the the destruction of metaphysics or whatever. It's got to go because all we need is logical analysis. Oh, you mean logic, truth, and method? Yeah, yeah. The first section of that book is, is just saying why metaphysics is kind of should be cast out of philosophy and so that it does there is a certain narrowing down of what philosophy is during this period that i can sympathize with as being you know a little bit again deflationary you know treating truth as just a function of the meaning of words and context as opposed to capital t truth which is something that's supposed to be universal and unchanging and guide our lives right we got to aim for the truth. We got to draw the bow and hold it taut and aim it at truth and follow through. But we can't do that if truth is outside of philosophy or if, you know, science is the province that verifies whether the cat is, in fact, on the mat or not, (laughs) right? I don't know. I I
2: think that you don't have to approach Wittgenstein from this depletionary viewpoint. And I'm also not really convinced by Kripke's hyper-skeptical interpretation of him, even though I think it's very interesting. I tend to think that, like... Terry Eagleton and Brandom's Hegelian materialist interpretation of Wittgenstein is my favorite uh, because they say, look, you know, in both Hegel and Marx, you find this idea that your sense of selfhood is very much dependent upon other people because you have to be associated uh, into a given culture Uh, that includes inheriting the language through which that culture articulates its worldview and its description of the world. And that language is also vital in a Hegelian sense, for you being able to articulate who you are because you inherit words like I or Matt or myself or I feel or whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, And in this sense, I see Wittgenstein uh, as proudly kind of uh, the most modern and clear exponent uh, of a very kind of German position that has an auspicious history in the 19th century. And he might have approached it from a bit more of a relaxed viewpoint in the end but there are definitely ways that you can say extraordinarily radical and interesting things with it like hegel and marx did uh, if you wanted to push his view far enough
3: Oh, there's definitely a basis for that kind of interpretation because again i think another way you could describe wittgenstein's trajectory is that he moves away from a correspondence theory of truth in his early work and moves towards a coherentist philosophy of truth in his later work, right? Because it's no longer about, you know, our pictures corresponding with states of things. It's about language games being autonomous and self-sufficient. They are they're consistent with themselves. They may they're not but they're untranslatable in a sense into other language games. So you get this coherence, this coherentist theory of truth, which I believe is due to some kind of interposition of of Hegelian and idealist ideas in Cambridge during the nineteen twenties. I mean that's not
2: just speculative. He makes that statement exactly in uncertainty, where he says Language consists of a vast web or vast network, depending on how it's translated, and you can't kind of chisel off any part of it and talk about this game in isolation from all the others, uh, because they do have a family resemblance to others that can allow you to not kind of reduce one game to another, but allow you to understand or enter into one of the games, knowing that you at least understand a little bit because you're familiar with some of the other things that are adjacent to it, right? Right, so
3: So we imaginatively kind of carve off language games in order to learn more about language overall but in a sense it's a system it's a social thing it exists in a totality and beyond any language game is always a form of life that corresponds to it, right? Like being a football player is being a form of life and it contains certain language games that are autonomous and self-sufficient, but it's still a big fabric that extends beyond those games. But I guess the the reason he says, you know, imagine the builder game, for example, and there's two builders and one of them calls out block or, or hammer and the other one goes and gets the hammer because they kind of know the rules of the game and they deliver the object that's a little that's a little primitive he calls a primitive language game we we imaginatively carve them up like that but really in reality these language games are a kind of totality a kind of like Saussurean langage almost right in a sense he kind of got what he
0: wanted i think because the way that we talk about philosophy is very rarely in that narrow correspondence theory of truth sense anymore we call we call marx marxism a philosophy when it's like mostly economics we call psychoanalysis philosophy when it's you know not definitely not about its its goal is therapeutic not truth so i think if you if you look at the way that we describe philosophy i guess we call it theory often too on this podcast but he kind of got he kind of got the wish that this would break into different games and you know some people might say this is the only way to see it some people might say this is the only way to see it but It's all blended a little bit. Yeah, and I
2: would also like to say, because an episode wouldn't be an episode without me blaming neoliberalism for everything... Uh, I do think there is a political connotation to this because once you realize uh, that our vision all right, I'm truth- afraid that's all we have time for right
1: now. I'm sorry. <laughs> once you realize that our
2: vision of truth is coherentist uh, and that a lot of who we think we are is dependent upon other people, you can understand all the different ways that communication can be vastly distorted uh, under the alienated conditions of modern neoliberalism. So, if we want our true Wittgensteinian paradise, uh, where forms of life are allowed to persist. Uh, with people engaged in democratic and loving association with one another, then the number one thing that you should take from the philosophical investigations is neoliberalism needs to be smashed as quickly as possible.
0: I wonder, if we had another time for another episode, I would want to like go around and figure out how realist everybody in here is, as opposed to pragmatist. That'd be fun.
2: The only realistic option is smashing neoliberalism pills. You know that. The only thing we should be talking about until we smash neoliberalism is how to smash neoliberalism. And then we can talk about all the other things that we want to.
3: Uh, in, a, in a sense, I think both of these views he adopts are both forms of anti-realism in a way. Um, but I'm not quite clear on it because it, you have to talk about, you know, is it naive realism we're talking about or scholastic realism or critical realism? There's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's some clarifications that need to happen so we don't Again, cross-language games again.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, realism to me is just one of those terms that you use when you want to pay homage to a certain viewpoint uh, because I would say Wittgenstein, in many senses uh, as very skeptical in some respects but very realistic in others since, as Pills likes to say, he is continuously pointing to the world of everyday life and saying, don't get caught up in all these intellectualized abstractions. Always start from asking the dude at the bar for a Miller Lite uh, or how a bricklayer is talking to his apprentice and teaching them how to lay bricks, or how two people are playing chess in a park. You start there and then you move forward. And we do not endorse the drinking of
0: Miller Light ever. <laughs>
3: yeah. No. I, w- I would also be interested to be better than that, out.
2: listeners. Don't drink Miller Light,
0: drink
3: Miller being High a, Life. Being a critical theory podcast, it would be interesting to compare his approach to critical theory possibly of of derrida and difference because i get the sense that they both start in very very different places but they you know they they maybe have similar things to say you know you have you have derrida's critique which usually starts out very close to somebody's text like the saussurean text and then like kind of works out the contradictions versus Wittgenstein, who seems to just be writing his own text and bringing in examples quite often, it's a very different method. They seem to be, but they seem to both be social philosophy in a certain way.
2: Well, this is the kind of connection that I would draw again between the Tractatus and the Philosophical Investigations, because the Tractatus is again sometimes presented as a seri- uh, lo- the ultimate form of logical argumentation, right where. You move step by step from one proposition, from proposition one down to proposition seven. And if you buy the initial premises, everything kind of flows. Except at the end, again, he has this remarkable statement where he says, The weird thing is, if you buy into the philosophy that I was just talking about, you'd realize that all the statements I make aren't concurrent with what I just said. uh, So there's a self swallowing kind of quality to this, because all I can do is demonstrate to you. Uh, how it is that you can think this way. I can't actually show you uh, in the pictorial way that I've described as the only consistent approach to truth. And you do see something similar to that in the philosophical investigations, where he doesn't sit there and start by saying, I'm going to provide you with my theory of social reality and language, and then we'll move from there to some examples. He says, I can only show you the way to think about this through examples. As Paul said, like, 60 of them or so just these unbelievable numbers of them and once you see enough of them, you'll start to get the right idea and Again, you'll realize all the kind of therapeutic implications that he's trying to get you uh, to appreciate
0: There's some of his books that I've never read and never got to like he wrote a book about color I think and one about psychology. I mean that'd be interesting I I very rarely see him cited, you know these days
2: well, I- interestingly, that essay on color is one of the only other things that he published in his lifetime, in addition to the Tractatus, and apparently a small sp- book uh, uh, for school children. Uh, but he says at that point that his views on the picture theory of language were starting to change because he wasn't exactly sure how it is that the picture theory of language could account for color as color, right? Uh, could account for it in terms of wavelength. But that doesn't seem to get at what we called in an earlier episode, know, the qualia of seeing red or seeing blue, right? Yeah, Uh,
3: the actual sense impressions.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's a very interesting point because you you don't really think seeing red or seeing blue is really all that important, but apparently it stimulated him to say, like, there's something really weird with my picture theory of language because color is essential to any picture, except for black and white one, I guess, or to most pictures. And yet I can't seem to account for that here. So eh, maybe there's a problem. And then again, yeah, nothing until he. Yeah, dies, the, the things that, that
0: become problems for him are very strange. Like the middle finger made him go re. Someone giving him the f- the finger made him rethink his uh, whole philosophy. Oh shit! I just came into color. I gotta throw the the book and start again. How is there uh, a hippopotamus in it? this room? I don't know that there's not. Yeah, that yeah. I could ever be certain I mean that for- there's not.
2: He was also weird in the sense that he had, I think, somewhat self-consciously like anti-bourgeois values in terms of his own personal habits. Because as Eric was saying at the beginning, he grew up in like a mega rich family that considered itself kind of highbrow liberal uh, in the period where, you know, Vienna was in many ways like at the center of Austrian and even European civilization. You know, Sigmund Freud, a variety of different people were kind of pioneering and breaking down taboos. Uh, But in terms of Wittgenstein's own taste, he almost seemed to try to cultivate this quasi-proletarian sensibility. Uh, Like, apparently he hated um, movies that aspire to be excessively artistic. Uh, He really liked westerns. That's what he liked to watch, right? Cowboy movies. Today, he would probably be going to see every bit of Marvel trash and saying, isn't that exciting and isn't that good? Uh, And if he was watching like a Godard film, he'd be like, ugh, you know that pretentious asshole lacks authenticity and integrity. He's just so far removed from everyday life and would have none
3: of it, right? It's hard to make sense of his personality. loved, Loved Beethoven. I think he was a bit ashamed that he wasn't musical. I think a lot of his family was very musically talented and he was worried in his youth that he didn't have any talents. He didn't know what he was gonna do with his life. And then he, th- then he discovered that he was pretty good at philosophy under Bertrand Russell. So,
2: well, did, you, did you ever hear how Bertrand Russell described him? He's like, I saw this young man who came up to me and he sat there and he's like, I need you to tell me immediately if I am a complete idiot. Because if I am yeah. a complete idiot, then I shall become an aeronautical mechanic. But if I am not a complete idiot, I shall do a philosophy. So I told him to write me something over the summer break. And yeah. upon reading the first sentence, I said, you are clearly not a complete idiot. You should absolutely become a philosopher. And
3: well, the, then, yeah. v- then
2: the rest of that like story,
0: though, is Wittgenstein wrote a critique of Russell's work. I think he asked him to even. But he wrote a critique of his, of his work. And Russell's response was, I saw that I could never again have a hope of doing anything in philosophy for the rest of my life. Yeah, which
2: is... Upsetting, right? And the weird thing about it too is he really was a kind of prodigy in a lot of senses because apparently, again, he had these weird kind of anti-bourgeois sensibilities because if you asked a lot of like Cambridge philosophers or people today, academic philosophers, how they approach their job. You know, they'd say it's my nine to five. You know, I wake up, I read a couple journal articles, I read a little bit, I go to a conference, and that's how I do things. Uh, and you know, you got to read and keep up with the literature and read all the important secondary sources. Apparently, he barely read any work on philosophy. You know, there's that scandal that he had never even bothered to read Aristotle's or or any of the kind of classical works of logic. He read a little bit of Russell, a little bit of Frege, uh, as Eric said. You know, some William James, but he didn't even really like professional philosophy all that much, and yet he was. Very, very gifted at it. And he
0: despised idiots. He went to teach. I think it was in Austria. He went to teach in this village and he wrote a letter to, I think, Russell. It might have been someone else. But he wrote a letter and he's like, the people here are 25% animal. And he eventually had to (laughs) flee the town because he was like... Brutally beating the children that he was supposed to be teaching in like high school and (laughs) sent a kid to the hospital and made like this girl's ears bleed And then they were gonna call the cops on him and he just skipped town and left
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing. Yeah, I really think he wanted to kind of cultivate this proletarian Sensibility I mean as Eric was pointing out there's that other period where he wanted to go to the Soviet Union and apparently when he petitioned to go they were like yeah we'll give you a position anywhere you want like you know you're famous western philosopher if you convert to the soviet system that's a fantastic coup for us and he's like no no i just want to do like back baking i want to work in a car like factory. all the people uh, and they were like no 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 we can't have you doing that because that'll just make us look worse it's like the first thing we did when Wittgenstein arrived is set him to the gulag or something like could, <laughs> could it be an important philosopher or nothing And he's like well not into that then bro uh but he just had like this kind of weird back and forth sometimes between his aristocratic and elitist tendencies coming out and just trying to desperately militate against them, sometimes to the point where he seems to have been torn over that like he has been was over so many things.
0: And he's a fascinating guy. And we haven't brought this up yet, but he's kind of a snack, too. What do you mean? <laughs> it's good looking. <laughs> yeah, he's got yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. nice dark features.
2: <laughs> he does, yeah. And apparently, yeah. unlike Nietzsche, he did actually have like genuine friendships. Like Nietzsche had this bad habit of taking friends and turning them into enemies. Uh Marx was gifted at that also. But like Wickenstein's buddies sometimes found him like difficult to deal with. And they're sometimes just like, you gotta fucking like calm down. Like not everything needs to be, like, ratcheted up to a 20, but... Yeah,
3: very intense guy.
2: Yeah, but, like, Keynes and Russell kind of remained friends with him on and off for uh, this entire life, and his students worshipped him, and apparently he did actually have genuine proletariat friends, which he was very proud of. You know, he'd go see <laughs> Westerns with them, and, you know, they wouldn't talk about philosophy, and when he was living on that shack, I think, in Ireland, I wanted to go visit him when I was living there. Apparently, like all the farmers in the region liked him. He'd go to the bar... But none of them knew who he was because he would never talk about it and he found that enjoyable.
0: His
3: his his proletarian accessories. Yeah, he volunteered at a hospital at one point, maybe during the Second War, and he and nobody knew who he was and he didn't tell anybody. And he was just volunteering. And then he ended up doing some amazing stuff, like designing a new machine for pumping blood or something like that. <laughs> and then they they kind of ask, oh, who are you? I'm Wittgenstein. Oh, you mean the Wittgenstein from Cambridge? He's like, yep, that's the one. Like, he was very weirdly humble sometimes. Just didn't, again, that's that asceticism coming through. He just didn't want... Worldly possessions. He didn't want fame. He didn't want money. He didn't want anything He just wanted a shack where he could just write and be happy and so somewhat alone But he also didn't want to be surrounded by idiots
2: like Phil's saying, you know, he had difficulty with that and I mean it takes real balls when you're in your 20s to write an 80-page book and say I've solved all the problems of philosophy None of you have anything to do anymore. So I'm just going to retire and teach school children because that's a more valuable enterprise than actually assuming the a Cambridge position teaching philosophy to undergraduates. No point in that, right? It's just you can only yeah, imagine how that must have pissed
3: people off. Kind of a weird combination of ascetic and megalomaniac called called Mozart and and Beethoven sons of god. <laughs> weird weird language to use for a guy who's supposedly an atheist but you know who knows he was, seemed kind of spiritual at the same time well we made it pretty far through this i think that was uh
0: as good of an intro as any yeah so we'll say yeah bye with that and thank you to the listeners and thank the three of you and
3: uh yeah catch us next week g- glad to learn about this topic
1: All right, guys, that was fun. Good talk. See you next time.
3: It
0: was efficient.